0: Pakistan what would the collapse of the nuclear armed power mean for all of us here in the United States I'm Bert Cohen and with your help we are keeping democracy alive He's not breathing Can you get a pulse Fairly There's a huge gap between
1: public opinion and public policy people don't feel that they can do very much
0: I speak tonight for
1: the dig- dignity of man
0: Unless you watch world news on BBC or other international news outlets, you might get the impression that the world revolves around America. Well, It's been set up that way throughout what was called the American Century. The great empires of the 19th century used to be British, Japanese, German, French, and to a lesser degree Russia. Then in 1898, beginning with the Spanish-American War and the U.S. conquest of the Philippines, it's been... The American empire all over the world. Though many still deny it, that era is coming to an end. Hundreds of millions of people, citizens of the earth, are starting to get the notice they deserve. Underlying it all is that we are all in a multilateral global economy now, and every country matters more than ever for all the other nations of the world. We are interconnected, interdependent, which is not to say suddenly there's no great power competition. Well, there is. China is now spread across Africa. Putin's Russia is trying to reestablish Russian greatness. Japan was forced to give up its dream of an Asian Pacific empire, and they certainly have adjusted rather nicely. The U.S. is, of course, still tremendously powerful, and the economic power still centered in Northern Europe is scrambling to keep up with other nations rising, struggling, and perhaps falling. More than ever, it's in the interest of those who call the financial shots to have stability everywhere, including South Asia, specifically India and Pakistan. We Americans may never hear a peep about these countries on the national corporate news, but their importance to us and to the entire world is only growing over time. Today on Keeping Democracy Alive, we focus on one of those big countries, Pakistan. I say big. No doubt most listeners know it borders Afghanistan, thanks to our recent war there. But that war is over, and a lot is happening in Pakistan, much of it worrisome that we absolutely should be more aware of. It's in our interest. I wonder how many listeners know much about Pakistan, even where it is. Well, our guest today is Murtaza Hussain, a reporter at The Intercept, who focuses on national security and foreign policy. He's appeared on CNN, BBC, MSNBC, and other news outlets. He writes in a new essay titled, Pakistan on the Brink, what the collapse of the nuclear-armed regional power could mean for the world. He writes the potential catastrophe unfolding in Pakistan will have consequences far beyond its borders. And that while much of Asia has gradually become rich and stable over the past few decades, Pakistan has remained poor, chaotic, and volatile. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Matassa uh, Hussain. It's hardly a small country. <laughs> so let's start with some basics. Where is Pakistan? What is the size of its population? And I wonder how many listeners know it's the fifth most populous country in the world. And one last question of this group here. Is it one country? I mean, Shia, it's one country, but is it really one nation or many? So tell us about Pakistan, please.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the size of it, too, because I think it's something that most people, most Americans certainly don't know, is that, as you said, Pakistan's the fifth biggest country in the world by population. It's about... Over 200 million people, people, some estimates say 220, 230 million. It's an unstructured society like many societies in Asia, so numbers like that are not always exactly clear, but uh, those are the rough estimates we have are very, very large. And you know, effectively, it's just west of India, it's just east of Afghanistan, and it is a country which was part of India until the British uh, left in the 1940s Mm. and partitioned the country or what was once India to a few other states, which now exist today. And Pakistan, as you mentioned, it's a very large country and it's going through a serious crisis at the moment, a uh, crisis which has been a long time in the making, an economic crisis as the elites struggle to provide or even take an interest in providing for this huge growing population. And a political crisis whereby its leadership is very divided between the military and the civilian elites, uh, and that's a bit more complicated than that, but that's kind of a rough way you can put it and then finally, an uh, ecological crisis being driven yeah. by climate climate change yes. and uh, the melting mm-hmm. of the glaciers. Another thing people don't really know or often don't know is that Pakistan is the country that has more glaciers than any other country on earth, really? so the impacts of yeah, that's right. the impacts of climate change are quite. Uh, Quite pronounced there, as we saw that in the flooding last year.
0: Wow! Yes, I guess uh, it's rather mountainous as as well. And you know, following up to my question about, yeah, it's one and to to mention the British, I, I am amazed at how much the the chutzpah of the British think they could own India and Pakistan. Uh, it's amazing what their cuisine. Yuck! Uh, what can I tell you? But is it the American war in Afghanistan ended? And what became of the cross-border Taliban? What are they up to in Pakistan? And is Pakistan one nation, or is it a bunch of different nations, like used to be the case in uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point. And I think you could make a similar point about India as well, too. This is a uh, very geographically diverse area. I think there's hundreds of languages spoken in India, and there's a— right. Quite a few different languages spoken in pakistan as well too uh accordingly you know it's it really i think that when the british left it should have actually been created uh they should have been created essentially something like a european union uh, that would have made a lot more sense where uh, many different nations can be united under one broader political or cultural framework uh, but you know they were effectively they were effectively created uh As one nation, and Pakistan is one nation, but comprising many different ethnic groups, Uh Punjabis and Sindhis and Baloch and uh, migrants from India, who are known as Muhajirs and Pashtuns uh, and so forth, who also overlap in Afghanistan. And, you know, it's a very, very diverse country. I think there is some sense of unity around uh, Pakistani national identity, but Uh uh, there are also a lot of secessionist movements and people who believe their ethnicity uh, should have been independent because they don't feel that they got a, a fair shake in this new system, and they weren't consulted often about it. And you know, to your question about the Taliban, it's a yeah. really interesting sort of example of that because uh, look, this, the Pashtun ethnic group, which from which the Taliban predominantly derives its membership, spread across Afghanistan and Pakistan, and they don't really recognize the border per se. They don't recognize; they think it's these colonial borders that they. Uh, bisect what should be one people and there has been even before the Taliban even in the previous Afghan government there was a lot of uh, dismissal of the importance of that border. Today now that the Afghan government has gone and there's a lot more chaos in Afghanistan unfortunately as a result
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know you see an uptick in terrorist attacks in Pakistan which come I, theoretically not from the Afghan Taliban but from a local branch of what's known as the Pakistani Taliban which targets the Pakistani state and civilians as opposed to Afghans. But it's not really clear. It's all really shadowy who's actually behind these attacks. We saw one about a month ago, a very deadly one, a police, a police mosque, which killed about 100 people. And I think, unfortunately, more of these attacks are likely to come.
0: Mm. So is it – I know that uh, you know, lots of other countries uh, may call themselves democracies or even be republics. But a lot of the political and economic power is centered and focused on a few people at the top. And sometimes people who don't have the money get a little bit uh, less than pleased with that. Is that the situation in Pakistan as well? Or is there is there a solid middle class?
1: Uh, well, you know, there is a middle class. I think the issue in Pakistan is it's very, very complicated because technically it's a uh, there's a lot of resources. There's a lot of uh, human capital as well, too. A lot of educated people. They have, you can see this uh, manifested in the fact that there's a nuclear program and quite uh, so certain advanced uh, institutions and industries and so forth. Uh, but it's very very skewed. It's not. Uh, it's a very in inequitable society, you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I would say effectively is that you know in Pakistan you have a certain political economy which is set up at present, which is very elite centric and elite focused um so what you could say is like most of the economy most of the developing economies they focus on developing industries and uh, you know broad-based uh, diversification of the economy and uh, manufacturing and labor and so forth in pakistan the economy is really set up to prioritize one thing which are subsidies for elite consumption because mm. uh, cons- the consumption habits of pakistani elites are you know they like to consider themselves to be on pace with Westerners, that's kind of like their goalpost is set, as opposed to other uh, Asians or developing countries. And secondly, the military. The military demands a very, very disproportionate size of the budget for what is still a poor developing country, and they want things to be top of the line. They want the best jets, they want the best uh, intelligence services, Uh, they want the best uh, technology, They they have the fastest growing nuclear arsenal on the planet. Now, some of this uh, spending is justified on the basis of uh, Pakistan's conflict with a much larger neighbor, which is India, right. uh, territorial conflict over a particular uh, region known as Kashmir, and also other, you know, advent foreign adventurism that the Pakistani military has undertaken over the course of the past several decades. So effectively, you know, they have a military-industrial complex. They have mm-hmm. an elite, elite military-industrial complex. And unfortunately, this neglects the vast majority of people's needs. And that's why today you see the system is very extractive and it requires, you know, international support. and requires money from Saudi Arabia or America or the United Arab Emirates or the IMF. And the money, people are sick of paying money into the system anymore because it's very, it's, it doesn't really serve anyone except for a very small elite of Pakistani civilians and uh, the military. So effectively... Uh, it's, it's not really, it's coming, reaching its breaking point. It's mm. very questionable what's going to happen next.
0: Well, we here in the currently United States don't seem to be reaching a breaking point, but the situation you describe where so much of the money goes to the top few and, and satisfying the elites and uh, the proportion of our economy that goes to the military is just, uh, it, it's unbelievable. But people, I don't know, they're not rising up here. I guess we've, we've gotten used to it. You write that it's hard to overstate the difficulty of Pakistan's current situation. An unfortunate string of recent events combined with chronic mismanagement has created a potentially mortal threat to Pakistan's political system. What, why is that? What What is that? And, and why should the average American care? Well,
1: you know, effectively, one thing is very, very important is that, as you mentioned at the start of the show, that Pakistan is very very large country it's a much bigger country than libya or syria i think it's maybe the population is more than 10 times the size of syria and you saw how the destabilization of syria impacted the world in a very oh, very serious true. way
0: yes.
1: uh if you know god forbid something like that happened in pakistan there will be a lot of things people do not like uh, far beyond the uh, pakistan's border far beyond even the region of south asia and not only that it's a much you know, it, they have a lot a very, very advanced military. They have a very, very advanced uh, nuclear program. They have a lot of things which, you know, the world is invested in the stability of. So, you know, it, it does matter a lot uh, what happens over there. And if you Pakistan, will be you destabilize India. You destabilize India. You know, India is becoming very important to the global economy. That's something which would be very difficult for uh, everyone if, if that would happen. That's it. I don't think that that's likely to happen. I don't foresee Pakistan completely falling apart anytime soon or even in the long term to be honest because uh, despite everything they do have a, you know a very robust military which can keep order and so forth and there are these local sub subgovernmental governmental um sources of stability on the local levels and on you know extended family levels things like that which have prevented you know i've shown a remarkable amount of resilience more than people have expected in the face of past crises but I do think that right now, if you look at the situation in Pakistan, the foreign reserves are down to maybe a few billion dollars. Debt is up to 170 billion. Mm. Um, it's not a very. The economic system is very dire, and the result of that, very practically, is that you can't import energy, and you need energy to for your factories to run, and for you know people to just be able to live or drive around and things like that. And they're coming to the point where they're no longer be no longer going to be able to import the basic necessities of life uh, and they're going out of you know coming out of reach of most people. One well, thing in Pakistan if you go there is like normally food is very cheap and uh, it's actually one of the nice things of living there is that it's quite accessible to get a decent meal. Uh, because it's an agricultural country. It's a huge agricultural producer. But now, you know, a lot of people are, have shortages of flour and things like that, which is pretty unheard of in Pakistan history. It shows you how bad things have gotten. So I, I do think that what could happen is if things continue, if there's no, not any remedy on the horizon, and you have the situation where the state's no longer providing, even keeping lights on, literally, what you could see is you could see breakdowns of local governance. You could see zones of ungoverned areas of the country, and that could be very bad. Even if the country itself continues existing, uh, you could see you know, when the order breaks down, it's very hard to reestablish it. Yeah. And all types of terrible, terrible things can grow in that vacuum.
0: Yeah, interesting. Very, very interesting, and we're I'm I'm learning a lot here. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Matassa Hussein, who's written an article on The Intercept called "Pakistan on the Brink: What the Collapse of the Nuclear Armed Regional Power Could Mean for the World," and and I'm thinking about different zones and. I'm kind of a fanatic about World War One, as regular listeners know. And one of the things that always fascinated me about the old Ottoman Empire was they had yeah, kind of a central government, but not really. Uh, and I know that's not really close to, to Pakistan, but I wonder uh, if, if it's at all like that.
1: Uh, well, you know, that's actually a very interesting sort of uh, comparison. And I think it's applicable to a lot of developed countries. If you had the Ottoman Empire, or uh, even traditional empires or kingdoms, you could say, mm-hmm. historically, uh, you don't really have the way that, that we think of the world map today, where you have all these territories and there's lines, and within the line, a certain mm-hmm. authority rules, and that's how it is really is more like you have a center and then you have a periphery and the farther you go off from the center, uh-huh. the weaker it's, its authority gets and the more autonomy there is around the peripheries. And then eventually you come up to another center and then it's you start feeling its uh, its authority. So I think that a lot of weak states are like that. And when you're yeah. in the capital, you feel the authority of the state a lot. And then the farther you go away from that you maybe you feel less and less. You know, I think I don't think America's like this. I think that they obviously the rule of law is relatively uniform across yeah. uh, the country but i do think when you're in dc you feel you're really sure where you are you're absolutely sure you're in america and uh, the state's influence is extremely powerful and then maybe if you go somewhere far away some rural areas so far away maybe you could feel a bit less and that's how it is mm. but that's a very this is also a very strong state if you go to a much weaker state like you know sub-saharan africa afghanistan certainly and you know some to be Pakistan or. Even in some ways, India as well, too, or other other South Asian countries. Uh, when you, the farther you go away from major urban areas, the less you feel uh, the authority of the state and the strength of it. And I think that that's very similar to the Ottoman Empire in the sense that I mean, that was a more extreme example. But yeah, you had the capital and then you had the peripheries and then it was quite different in life between both.
0: Yeah, it it wasn't that really that long ago in the United States that out in the in the Midwest in the in the less densely populated areas the only contact people had with the federal government with the central government was the post office. That was it. It wasn't that long ago really. And electricity is something that I mean, we're using electricity right now. American listeners assume will will it just be there. But you say in late January 2023 there was an unprecedented Nationwide, nationwide blackout. Is it known what caused it, and in what ways, as you suggest, could it uh, kind of preclude uh, what may lie ahead?
1: Well, it's not totally clear what caused it. Yeah. Uh, there was, as like you said, a nationwide blackout for 24 hours, which is, you know, quite unprecedented and uh, serious. Um, you know, in Pakistan, there are blackouts pretty often, but uh, that, that's not, not like that. That's certainly an, another stage. <laughs> So I think that uh, you know there was some discussion uh, online, and some tech analysts raised the point that you know because Pakistan's uh, infrastructure right now is in a state of uh, chaos, you could say uh, it also makes it more vulnerable to cyber attack. And obviously, Pakistan has a very negative relationship with its closest neighbor, India. Hacker hmm. groups are taking responsibility for the for the blackout and saying that they hacked the uh, hacked the grid and caused it to go down. I don't know if that's true or not. It, it could be true. It's really it's very circumstantial evidence. But I do think that it all, all kind of ties together anyways. The more that the grid decays and the more uh, its investment is sort of uh, delayed or ignored in necessary modernization, you're going to have more blackouts and you're going to have also more susceptibility to cyber attacks. And Pakistan has a very bad relationship with Quite a few countries, its neighbors. Afghanistan has, does not have a good relationship with Pakistan. India obviously doesn't. Mm-hmm. And even Iran doesn't really have a very good relationship with Pakistan. So they have a lot of enemies, unfortunately, and a lot who would be maybe not happy to see Pakistan collapse, but uh, certainly would. And they're certainly vulnerable to you know certain forms of uh, undermining or attack. And so, you know, well, we, we don't know what causes this blackout, but. It certainly could have been something more nefarious than just a technical
0: error. Mm. And, and you know, is it uh, the electric electric grid, is that uh, privately held or is the government, uh, or is there some combination thereof?
1: Uh, you know, it's a good question. I'm not totally sure throughout the whole country, you know, that mm. uh, at least in major urban areas, the government's theoretically responsible. But, uh, you know, also, I, I will say that in Pakistan, there's a very stark inequality in power access so richer people uh, tend yeah. to have tend to have generators so when the power goes out you know it matters a bit less to them mm-hmm. because they insulate themselves mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah they have, they, have uh, they insulate themselves through the generators and so forth so you know they can kind of uh, live on their own i think it's a very libertarian country actually in a way and i would oh. say that in a good way uh-huh. so i would say that basically that rich people they pay for their own private security they pay for their own generators they pay for they live in their own little world and then they don't really invest in poor people they live in alternate universes in a way and mm-hmm. i think that a lot of people in america were kind of more uh, economically libertarian leading they might actually want this in their own country they they may think at least in I, in the idealized sense, they may think that this sounds great because well, you don't pay taxes because the government doesn't collect taxes uh, very well over there. and rich people always find a way to hire it anyways. So mm-hmm. people rich people keep their money, they invest it themselves, and then everyone else kind of has to make do on their own. I don't think this is a very good system for the majority of people, but certainly the rich people there do get the best of everything. And when things go down, they, they don't really they were never really that exposed anyways.
0: And they got the power. They have the, poli- I mean, it's a worldwide thing. You know, you have money, you got uh, political power. That's, that's often the way it works. And uh, I regret that. But uh, I have to ask about flooding. We haven't touched on that yet. There was some really significant flooding in Afghanistan. I, it was in 2022, right? It hasn't happened this year yet, I don't think.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah it, that's right. Uh, I think it goes back to what I mentioned earlier that Pakistan has the uh, most glaciers in the world,
0: and uh, oh, yeah.
1: you know, obviously it's been getting a lot hotter uh, mm. you know, all over the world, and these glaciers are melting, and the glaciers are also extremely important to irrigation and agriculture in the country uh, too, because uh, sure. the water drips down and you know keeps everything effectively fertile as a result. Mm. Now what's happening is that they're just melting in these big floods and. When you have a flood, it's not good for it. The water just eventually washes away into the ocean. Yeah. yeah so, you have first you have the, the flood, then you have drought. So, you know, we saw these massive floods, about a third of the country been put underwater, many mm. people displaced. I don't think there was much really, it hasn't been much meaningful recovery from that. Mm. And at the same time, it's a political crisis, it's a security <laughs> crisis, a so lot, many, many bad things happening all at once.
0: Oh, lovely. <laughs> Speaking of which, though, it's not really that near Ukraine, in what ways has Pakistan been, as you say, particularly hard hit by the war in Ukraine? Huh? Tell us about that. Is it the fuel or, or what?
1: Yeah, well, exactly. Like, uh, you know, this has disrupted the uh, global energy supplies, this war. And effectively, Pakistan has been forced to bid for <laughs> liquid natural gas against other countries. And Pakistan had bet very strongly on LNGs being the fuel it's gonna use to power itself over the next you know decade or so. And suddenly it couldn't fulfill those contracts because it was bidding against wealthy European countries which were trying to you know, were willing to pay top dollar for whatever LNG was there remaining on the market and poor countries not just pakistan but pakistan is a good example we're simply not able to compete in these auctions so they literally didn't have any power to to make up for the imbalance there and what you've seen uh then is that pakistan now is looking towards coal and other forms of uh you could say dirtier fuel to make up for the the short gap in what they've lost and you know it remains to be seen if uh how this is going to work out or whether. Uh, you know, it'll be sustainable. But yeah, basically, it's an energy importer, Pakistan. So any disruption in the global prices are going to hit it particularly hard.
0: And being the fifth most populous country in the world, that's a lot of uh, fuel. It's, it, it just has to be. It, it, there's no other way around it. People get uh, used to it. And, and you write that until the 1980s, Pakistan's trajectories was, was more positive. Why has Pakistan become more difficult to govern with each passing year?
1: Well, there was, uh, I think, a very bad thing that happened in Pakistan was the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 80s. Uh, that turned Pakistan into, like, a first of all, it was a huge refugee crisis. It turned Pakistan into a transit point for um, weapons and all these other things to fund the war effort in that country. Uh, to expel the Soviets, and you know, it gave kind of birth to what you can consider modern terrorism. Uh, that was sort of born in the crucible of the brutality of the war, which mainly was perpetrated by the communists in that in that conflict. But uh, you know, the survivors of the war were very brutalized, and a lot of them were orphans, and uh, a lot of them became swept up in these transnational terrorist movements. Uh, which obviously would impact Pakistan because it's next to the next door neighbor of that country. Mm. And, you know, I would say the country has never really recovered from that. It's never really recovered. It's never in the same place. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but certainly uh, it's on a very tough trajectory that's going to require very difficult uh, decisions to steer away from in the future.
0: Mm. And I have to mention, just, just briefly, uh, we're talking about Pakistan. Close to its Rival, they've been rivals for a long time. India, and I, I don't know that much about the Modi government of India, but my impression is they're rather hawkish, right-wing, religious nationalist government, and religious nationalism. That's you know that's what uh, the Trump people are. They're Hindu nationalists. Uh, and here it's the right-wing Christians that are the uh, religious nationalists. In both countries, there are millions of citizens in both America and India who are not part of that. And just today, I read that uh, Modi of India is cracking down on freedom of the press. And that has has been calling itself the world's largest democracy is becoming autocratic. Uh, there, there must be some concerns about that in, uh, in Pakistan. And, and how is that being... How is Modi perceived in in Pakistan, and uh, how, how are you guys dealing with it, or how is Pakistan dealing with it?
1: Uh, well, he's perceived quite negatively. He's sort of uh, there's he's sort of considered that uh, you know effectively he's like a ideologically very hostile to Muslims, and obviously Pakistan's is uh, a overwhelmingly right. Muslim state. Right. And you know, the, I, I think that you know if you look at Modi's history, he was involved in this very uh, awful event in the early. 2000s in uh, the state that he was governor of, where there was a gigantic pogrom, which seems to yeah. have been uh, uh, intimately involved in, which uh, several thousand people were killed, and sort of egged on and encouraged by him. A uh, uh, riot, particularly and uh, many women were sexually assaulted, and people were burned, and uh, there was a BBC documentary about it. That came out a few weeks ago, which the Indian government's trying to ban. So effectively, he has a very checkered record. He was actually banned from entering the United States for accusations of war crimes for many years. Mm. So he's a very polarizing figure uh, for good reason, not just in Pakistan, but in many other places. And, you know, that said, uh, the previous Pakistani government did try to engage with uh, the Pakistani government. Not that previous one, but the, the two governments ago, mm-hmm. Pakistani governments changed, changed quite quickly. If uh, mm. Nawaz Sharif did try to engage with India because there's a sense, well, you have to be realistic, this is our neighbor, and you know we may not like who governs it, but they're not going to be going anywhere. So they tried to engage with them a bit. But unfortunately, in 2019, uh, the issue of Kashmir sort of uh, kicked off. There was a, a bombing there against a military target, and then the Indian government uh, declared that Kashmir would be off the table for future negotiations. And effectively, and then things have been frozen since then. So they're a very hawkish government, and Pakistan is, this is a very core issue for Pakistan. So I think that. Kind of put to bed the prospect of any good relations in Pakistan, mm. India, uh, uh, maybe ever, maybe ever, because I don't see this issue changing anytime in the future. And, and uh, yeah, more certainly driven that.
0: Pardon my ignorance. Kashmir is that a Muslim-dominated area?
1: Yes, it's about uh-huh. ninety-nine, yeah, exactly. Uh,
0: it may have been something to do with it. Right, you know, right. Hindu nationalism, mm, 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 not not very nice. Any kind of nationalism, I I don't. I don't like nationalism in general because okay. it means you know we're better than you, and I, that's we got to get over that stuff. And until reading your article in uh, in the Intercept, I had not heard of Imran Khan. There was an assassination attempt against him last year. Uh, today he boasts a large and committed base. Uh, who, tell us about Imran Khan and how much. Perhaps the Western, rich Western nations ought to be uh, concerned.
1: Well, you know Imran Khan is—he uh, was a former cricket player in Pakistan. He's very popular for that reason.
0: Uh-huh. He, he
1: lived for lived for a long time in the West. You uh, know, he, he had kind of a reputation of being a bit of a playboy in the West. He's—he's he's very Westernized, you can see his lifestyle, which is something he talks about himself um and you know he when he was a private citizen he was a very very popular private citizen because he fundraised for a cancer hospital and then he you know did a lot of other things he, he had a perception of a personal incorruptibility which is quite different from other pakistani politicians or who seem quite indifferent or quite uh, corrupt you know in terms of their own dealings so he got he generated a quite popular movement that brought the power with the support of tacitly of the military a few years ago and then he fell out of the military uh over you know his I, it's not that clear what the if there's one cause of it but uh he um, you know has fallen out of the military they helped him get out of power uh, or they pushed him out of power yep. Yep. Uh, not long ago and he's trying to come back now and you know he's out of power they're trying to threaten him with jail and things like that but he is saying that he's going to lead a march of many, many people back into power in, in, if, if he's, the election's not held this year, which he's able to participate in. So, you know, that's all to say that there's a very chaotic political situation. And uh, I don't really take particular sides about who's good or who's not in this situation, although I think that most Pakistanis are fed up with the same two or three families running things all the time. So that's what kind of the appeal of Imran Khan. But, you know, the political paralysis is making it harder to deal with all the other issues we talked about, including economic or geographical or environmental issues.
0: So this Imran Khan, you know, it's interesting, celebrity worship. We have a whole bunch of that here. I mean, there was a guy, uh, uh, Herschel Walker, who ran for U.S. Senate and did remarkably well in our state of Georgia because he was a football star. And uh, so Imran Khan was a— I, was he a football star there, too? You know, what we call soccer?
1: No, no, not, not football. Cricket, which, ah, you cricket, know, Pakistan sure. is. is, uh, as
0: as is. Uh, pardon as me. As. And is is Khan left or right, or is there a left and right in Pakistan these days?
1: Uh, you know, there is, like, some marginal leftist movements. And, like, you could say that he's, his party is maybe center-right. And maybe some of the opposition parties are also center-right or maybe center-left. But I wouldn't say there's like a far-left uh-huh. po- party. I wouldn't say there's a popular far-right party either. It's a, There's a broad center, yeah. and I think they all fit into it in some way. But I wouldn't say that the divisions exactly track American politics, because some of the center-right parties, they favor welfare policies, but they're yeah. socially conservative. Or Some of the center-left parties are basically super neoliberal, but they – are slightly more culturally liberal so it's a little bit more
0: complicated it's always more complicated than it seems and uh yeah I- interesting that uh, at least the uh the center there seems to recognize that uh you know a, a some degree of welfare state is kind of essential that you need to have that it's not just uh you know being nice it's not a nanny government you have to it's, it's in everybody's interest to have some degree of stability. And for those who may have just tuned in, we're talking about stability in Pakistan. Our guest today is uh, Murtaza Hussain, who writes for The Intercept, he focuses on national security and fo- foreign policy. He's been on CNN, BBC, MSNBC, and other news outlets and uh, he's got a new essay in the intercept called Pakistan on the brink what the collapse of the nuclear armed regional power could mean for the world and as again it's it's not a part of the world that most Americans think about every day it's like hardly ever on the news only if there's a disaster you know if as they they say in the news business if it bleeds it leads but if it doesn't it doesn't get any coverage on American TV but this is it's important to us what goes on in South Asia it's up big country. And it matters. And I suspect the European powers are more, and Europeans in general, uh, maybe more aware of the importance of uh, a stable Pakistan uh, than we are. And as I said earlier, there's still great economic power centered in Northern Europe. I'm talking about the International Monetary Fund and other uh, financial institutions like the IMF tell us about the relations between them, the IMF and Pakistan. W- what does Pakistan want? What does the IMF want? How much power do they have economically?
1: Well, uh, the IMF would like the, the Pakistan needs a loan from the IMF just to keep the lights on and to uh-huh. kick, kick, kick the can down the road, down uh-huh. kick the can down the road a little bit longer to. Right. You know, enact uh, necessary changes and reforms and the imf wants changes in the pakistani economy as a result they want uh some, some reports cuts in military spending uh, they want a lifting of subsidies um, on you know fuel and other things that you know not just rich Pakistanis but also poor Pakistanis also rely on so you know i think what they want is austerity of, of various types in return they will issue a loan and that loan will, you know, keep things going for a little while. Hopefully things can change at that time. But uh, it's not very easy. It's like not a very simple sort of situation because, you know, effectively, you know, they're being – the IMF has its own interest and Pakistan has its own interest. And they're being asked to sacrifice a lot of short-term pain in, you know, in exchange for the money they need to keep going. Mm. So I think that they're going to have to take this deal at some point, I think. But it's not going to be easy. And it's not like going to be hard to easy to sell too to Pakistanis domestically because there's an election this year, and in years of this election, the opposition is going to jump upon any cuts of subsidies or hardship that people are suffering as a result of these deals, and extract benefits benefits from that themselves.
0: Mm. So the IMF, I, I know in the past in in various different countries they've they've insisted on austerity. Uh, and you know their their focus is on the pound or the dollar or the euro, whatever, making the money, making the interest. So what kind of a loan do you know that they may be talking about? And is it a decent amount of interest that they're uh, calling for, or is it uh, kind of you know a little harsh?
1: Uh, well, it's it's not totally clear because they're still negotiating, ah. and uh, you know effectively uh, they're going to ask for a suite of cuts to. The- Pakistani spending in exchange for money, basically a reform of the economy. Uh, th- that said, you know, Pakistan has a lot of debt. They have a hu- hugely indebted uh, country, the IMF, the China, to many other places. And these interest payments on these debt are very crippling and very right. debilitating. So, you know, it's going to add more debt. And, you know, they have the ability to turn things around if they set their minds to it. But there's a lot of stakeholders inside the country who don't want things to change. and. You know, I, I, it remains to be seen if they think that they don't have a choice anymore.
0: And I wonder if, I mean, you talk about uh, Pakistan is hardly alone in this and having, you know, a few ruling families uh, with a lot of money. If what the IMF wants, if if the uh, the burden is shared <laughs> Uh, or if it's uh you know trickled down to to the uh, large population and that you know any uh, uh increase in interest rates uh, is borne by people who can least afford it or I wonder if there's any kind of uh, uh you know balance there
1: yeah yeah there, there definitely is and uh you know, I find that rich people they, in any country they find a way to insulate themselves, for oh, the yeah. most part, from uh, the worst of it. But you know, in Pakistan, there's a lot of uh, a lot of foreign reserve is spent on uh, you know importing luxury goods from the West, very expensively. You know, d- scarce dollars basically are spent on that. So I think that that has to change, and unless elites decide to change that, uh, no. it's going to be very, they have to change the lifestyles basically. <laughs>
0: Yeah, waiting for elites to make some changes, uh, it does tend to get a little frustrating uh, for sometimes. And like with many countries, you know, where there may be a facade of democracy and a republic, the military in many, many countries remains the real arbiter over politics. I mean, like uh, in Brazil, it was curious to see what the military was going to do when Bolsonaro lost his election. Were they going to fight for, go on Bolsonaro's side and and support that attempted coup. The military in many countries has a lot of real political power. Um, Does this make responsible stewardship of the Pakistani economy even more difficult? And are citizens, like in in Saudi Arabia, I know citizens are afraid of the violent power of the Saudi, the the family-backed military?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, the military has very strong prerogatives. They don't want their own spending to be cut. Right. Uh, they have a lot of money and they have a lot of interests. And it's not just that, they control a lot of the economy. Uh, a lot of you know businesses are run by the military, real estate mm. conglomerates are run by the military and they get subsidies. So it's, it's going to hit their bottom line if that changes and they're going to fight it very hard, I think.
0: And uh so after dec- you know two decades of occupation, the u s finally left Afghanistan. Uh, I can't understand why we didn 't learn from Russia that you can't do it and as Winston Churchill called it the, uh, the the graveyard of empires, I mean, it was there for everybody to see anyway, that happened, and the Taliban took over. What a surprise. Did the Taliban threaten Pakistan now what how much what's the concern? in Pakistan, do you think, about the Taliban?
1: Well, you know, they're concerned about terrorism. They're concerned about, they don't mind the Afghan Taliban, but they don't want the Pakistani Taliban to do <laughs> the same thing to them. <laughs> so that's kind of it. And, uh, you know, to the extent that they can manage that, it's, you know, questionable. You know, but also, you know, if as long as the Taliban is not really able to govern effectively in Afghanistan, it's going to be a base for other terrorist groups that, you know, separatist groups or transnational terrorist groups like ISIS, uh, they will be able to live and thrive there as long as the government's weak. So, mm. you know, a weak Afghanistan is not really in Pakistan's interest, but they didn't like the previous Afghan government either. So it's kind of hard to know what, what they want. <laughs>
0: and and you were talking earlier about there's the center of the country and then there's you know the, the further out you go the outlying areas my sense was in afghanistan that the uh, former president whose name i forget it's okay that i do uh he was allegedly president of afghanistan but my sense was it was just kabul and no place else <laughs> you know it just yeah. it, it wasn't there and it's part of world i mean pakistan is a big player in world politics whether we know it or not and China, they're deeply dug into development in Africa. They have a clear interest in that, and they're really investing a lot in the uh, roads and belts. I think they call it uh, uh, in in Africa. They're the new big boys on the block. China uh, is not far from Pakistan. Where is China in all this?
1: Yeah, China actually invested very heavily in the belt and road in Pakistan as well, too, but. I think it didn't really pay much dividends in the sense that, you know, uh-huh. effectively this was a way for China to deploy its excess capital. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of, you know, word that the infrastructure they build is not very high quality. It's not very durable or sustainable. It's certainly Ethiopia and other countries have sim- said similar things. So I think that the Belt and Road, it's a very good idea and, you know, could still pay dividends in some way with but- you know, to date, I wouldn't say it's been very successful, at least in terms of how other countries have uh, experienced uh, what it's like to deal with China.
0: So they're they're getting they're getting wise to to China, and China has an interest there for sure. Uh, and they they try to push their weight around uh, lots of different places, and we can't forget about uh, Tibet. You talk about, uh, gosh, I can't help but think there's a lot of uh, glaciers in Tibet as well. Uh, so, and there have a tough time. What are we. We have to talk about the U.S. and spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the U.S. and Pakistan, how it's been, how it's been important uh, since I mean, Pakistan was created in, in 1947 with with the uh, final uh, departure of the British. It took them long enough, but uh, how? Tell us about relations between the U.S. and Pakistan historically and and now. I mean, it's, it's been sort of. There's been a lot of uh, concern about this, people for uh, Pakistan having, you know, a lot of nukes and people concerned about that. What about the relations with the U.S.?
1: Yeah, its relationship is uh, shifting, shifts. And I think that during the war in Afghanistan, there was some sort of uh, mutual interest, but there's also mutual disagreement over what should happen in that country. So I think that, you know, Pakistan and the U.S. since the 80s have been very... Uh, since they've shared fight against communism that they had, uh, uh-huh. or perceived that, it's the Soviet Union, I would say, uh, they had, uh, they've been in the security relationship, but their interests are not the same. So their interests are not the same because uh, ultimately in Pakistan's concerned by India and America doesn't care about India that much. Yeah. They don't think that Pakistan should be concerned about this. So their interests are not aligned. They were not aligned in Afghanistan because the U.S. tried to put a very pro-Indian government in power in Afghanistan, which Pakistan found to be Intolerable, mm. and that's what led to the Taliban coming about. So you saw a very tough relationship at that time, and you know the issue of Pakistan's uh, security services potential involvement in terrorism and all these other things that people don't really like. Osama Bin Laden was found in Pakistan's equivalent of West Point. You know that doesn't mean that the government is supporting him directly, but it certainly doesn't raise some red flags. And, you know, I think that also this Pakistan's is not very happy that they feel that they've been a very good ally in America in their eyes. And America has always preferred India, despite that, or not huh. side with Pakistan against India. So, you know, it's a mutual recrimination and sort of like an unhappy but necessary relationship, which still continues to stay.
0: Wow. So, and and you said something about uh, the, the U.S. supporting uh, India. I'm not sure if I heard this right, that that may have led to the rise of the Taliban?
1: Uh, well, yeah. Well, th- this is the thing that uh, when the U.S. put a new uh, the people that put power, were, you know, effectively this group which used to exist, which used to fight the Taliban, called the Northern Alliance.
0: Ah, yes. More,
1: more or less, it was those people. And those people were supported by India. So, you know, when they ah. put in power, there was a, effectively a pro-Indian government in power in Afghanistan, which had very good ties with the Indian government. And, you know, Pakistan is very concerned from their eyes that, well, if this is India on one side and a pro-Indian government in Afghanistan on the other side, we're encircled. And if you look at the geography of the country, um, that that land that would be threatened by that is a very flat plain where all major cities are, most of its major cities are. And it's not very defensible. So uh, they decided that this is absolutely not by any means an acceptable outcome that Afghanistan be controlled by a government which we don't like and that India likes. So, who's the best tool to dismantle that? The only tool, really, is the Taliban, they're the main opposition to the government. And you know, the government did a lot of bad things. They, you know, they also helped create this problem with the Taliban. And they helped keep it going, uh, the Afghan government, but and the U.S. government as well too. But you know, effectively, this is what the driver was. It was a strategic disagreement over who should control Afghanistan. Mm. Well, wow, that's
0: interesting. Yeah, so much of of what. U.S. foreign policy does has uh, uh, unintended consequences, to put it mildly. Uh, we keep doing that over and over and over again, but we don't uh, seem to uh, to learn it. And and one can understand if uh, if a lot of people, if perhaps the majority of people in Pakistan saw the U.S. as tilting toward India, and uh, the Taliban was uh, against that, that. That could sway people to uh, be more sympathetic or, or at least listen to the the Taliban and uh, so I wonder how much of a of a democracy is it? I mean, I, I, I do wonder the military is very strong in Pakistan. The military is very strong in lots of different countries, and they 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 call the shots a lot, and people are afraid. Of the military. I mean, they have a lot of weapons. <laughs> and uh, it, it, I, I wonder about people's rights and, and any sense of, of democracy there. I know, and, you know, democracy is not always, there are so many places in the world where democracy is an unfamiliar concept and, you know, it can't be imposed from the outside, Lord knows. But what about uh, uh, democracy there and people's ability to feel like they are? You know, real citizens being able to participate in, in self-government.
1: Well, you know, I think that this is a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, you know, what you really people tend to need first is security and, then you know, basic ability to live. And then, you know, democracy right. can facilitate that. But sometimes it comes a little bit further down the line. Uh, and, you know, right now, if you look at the entire region, especially Pakistan, Afghanistan, a lot of people are insecure in terms of, you know, physical security, food security, things like that. Uh, I think that, you know, it's very hard to have a democratic competition while you're also trying to address issues like that. And I think you're seeing that in Pakistan right now because the government has to make very tough choices to get this IMF loan. Those tough choices are going to make things harder for people in the short term. And, you know, the opposition is going to say, well, hey, it's election year. and Why are you raising gas prices? So, you know, that's kind of uh, the tricky dilemma that we have.
0: And talk about democracy. Say there's an election coming up. I have no idea when that is. And what about parties? Here we are, you know, in the U.S. we only have two uh, real parties. What about uh, in Pakistan?
1: Yeah, well, Pakistan has uh, the ruling party, which is called the Pakistan Muslim League. They have the opposition, two opposition parties, the Pakistan People's Party and then the uh, Pakistan Tariq Ansaf, which is uh, Imran Khan's party. Yeah. so, we have the Liberation Party. Uh, so, you know, effectively, uh, you know, you have these three parties, and, you know, they sort of tend to coalesce around specific individuals or families, mm. and mm-hmm. they have patronage, and they'll be contesting it later this year. <laughs> remains to be seen.
0: Uh, around families. Well, we're not that uh, blatant here. <laughs> There's, yeah, you know, man. certain political elites here, but uh, but... I mean, and, and certain families try it, but uh, it, it doesn't quite work that way here. And again, if people just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about keeping democracy alive in America. It's hanging by a thread here for sure. And our guest today is Murtaza Hussain, who's written an article in The Intercept. We're talking about Pakistan, something we don't often think about, but it's huge. And the article is Pakistan on the Brink, What the Collapse of the Nuclear Armed Regional Power Could Mean for the World. Is it – so is this Imran Khan, is he running again? Is he – is it possible that he could be uh, the leader of Pakistan, of Pakistan? And do you have a prime minister and a president, two separate offices?
1: Yeah, he could easily. He could, uh, he's very popular. He won ah. some local elections recently. Definitely possible. he could uh, come back. He's certainly aiming for that. And uh, it's going to be a big big crisis when the, the election comes, I suspect.
0: Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> do they spend a lot of money on, on TV and radio like like they do here in this on this uh, in this country? Yeah, yeah
1: TV, radio, ads, internet uh, campaigns—definitely uh-huh. uh, very boisterous campaigns, one way or another.
0: Oh, that's good. I like boisterous is fun sometimes. I must say, uh-huh. <laughs> having been in protests, that can be dangerous sometimes. Both uh-huh. India and Pakistan are nuclear powers, and former Prime Minister Asif Al Zardari once reportedly told US diplomat Richard Holbrooke that Pakistan was too big to f- to fail likening the country to those US banks that received massive bailouts as as you say there is tremendous uncertainty and you have certainly painted that picture today we did bail out those banks rather than risk any default are steps being taken to avoid default and collapse? Is it just up to the IMF? What will it mean to America if that instability continues?
1: Well, you know, it's tough to say. It's very—I think—I mentioned earlier. There's it could be a refugee crisis. It could be, uh, you know, arms flowing out of the country. It could be ungoverned zones. It could be terrorism and from they, there from extremist groups. A lot of things could. Uh, could come about, that could not be very good. Uh, that said, I don't foresee sort of that the country will totally collapse, to be honest with you, It's mm-hmm. some degree possible, but I think it's, you know there are sources of stability there which are beneath the surface to a degree. Um, but that said, you know I do think that even short of a collapse, I think that you could see quite, quite troublesome uh, developments in the next year, particularly if there's no IMF deal uh, in the next uh, yeah, few man. months, because there's no IMF deal. You're going to see... A lot of economic instability in Pakistan, which the results of which politically will be, you can say, unpredictable.
0: Yeah, if they if they don't get that loan, but but Pakistan is already heavily in debt, and so, and and you say rich people find a way to avoid paying taxes. Uh, how does that debt get paid off?
1: Uh, you know, they have to totally reform the economy. They have to reform the economy, such so that you know the exports are more the imports, so their foreign reserves grow. Uh, they can pay off the debt and then slowly be free from it. It's not going to be necessary. And it's possible, to be honest. It is possible if you made the right decisions to invest in the right things. But uh, it's going to take a lot of short-term pain, which um, mm. I'm not
0: sure if they're ready to pay. Short-term pain for long-term gain, maybe. Well, I wonder how much – I mean, if, if you were to uh, to talk to the average American who doesn't really, let's face it, pay much attention to things outside our borders unless they get on the nightly news – uh, the co- the corporate news, what what concerns should average Americans have about Pakistan? How much uh, attention should, we, we're probably not paying enough attention to it. How much attention do you think we should be paying to it, and and why? I mean you say, really,
1: that uh, Americans should or should not, but really? certainly the leaders should uh, uh. take it seriously. And I, I think that look, it's a big country. It's a country of, uh, as you said, the two hundred million more people, mm. and you know. If something bad happens there, it's important to the whole world. It's not a far away. It always is a far away place, but it's not a uh, irrelevant place. Yeah. Uh, I think you know. There's often the perception that it's a small country, you know, far away doesn't matter. I know it's a very big country, and you know, we're talking about like a significant chunk of humanity. And you know, as much as we should be invested in stability of China or India, I think Pakistan's is comparably. Comparably important country.
0: A lot of people don't don't know that uh, there's over 200 million people there. They just they don't know that. Well, if people are interested, this has been very interesting, very revealing. If people are interested in reading more of your work, Mutasa uh, Hussein, go to the The Intercept.
1: Yeah, that's right. You can uh, go to the Intercept and uh, you can see my see my work there, including this article.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And let's hope for some uh, relative stability and economic fairness. That could happen, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. thank, well, you, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Th- thank you. Thank you, Bert. So happy.
0: And this music is from Janoon, a Pakistani Sufi rock band from Lahore, Punjab, Pakistan, and Tappan, New York. And it's called Sayanii. ¡Sí, you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.